and welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. I'm Anna. And today we have Nick. Hi. Hi, Nick. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's great to have you join us. So could you tell us a little bit about who you are, your research, and how you came to be where you are at the moment? Yeah, so my name is uh, Nick McGee. I'm a uh, doctoral candidate in history at uh, the University of Toronto in Canada. But I actually live uh, here in the UK. I live in uh, Manchester. So how did this happen? How did that happen? I'm still doing a PhD uh, in Canada. I live here because uh, my partner got a job at the University of Manchester. She and I met uh, when we were both doing our PhDs uh, in Toronto. Two years ago, uh, she got a position over here, so we came together. And uh, I've been trying to finish sort of remotely from here and trying to sort of weasel my way into the UK academic world uh, over that time. And how's that been going? What's the experience of finishing a PhD remotely for such a long time been like? I mean, it's certainly not ideal uh, in some ways. I really do miss sort of the academic community I had uh, back in Toronto. But at the same time, I think there are some advantages, particularly for me. I had a good cohort, but a lot of people uh, in my program are very um, intense, sort of high, kind of high achieving, uh, arguably overachieving candidates. And uh, it can be kind of a stressful environment at times. So I, I've, I found it sort of relaxing in some ways to just be doing things remotely. In our system, we don't Based on what I've seen so far, it seems like we don't have nearly as much uh, sort of supervision and contact with supervisors. Not necessarily a good thing, but it seems to be the way it is. So it hasn't been a huge uh, impediment to keeping in touch with my supervisor. Usually it only requires a Zoom meeting here and there, even before the pandemic. We're all meeting via Zoom these days. Exactly, yeah. So I'm, I'm in the same boat as everybody. You're ahead of the curve. You were more prepared for this than the rest of us. In some ways, I uh, particularly because I, uh, for the most part, I've just been uh, working from home. I've done, before the pandemic, I was trying to do as much work in cafes and libraries and things as possible. But I, I put a lot of effort into trying to get a good setup to work from home. So I was, uh, I was definitely... Uh, ahead of the rest of the world being forced into working at home in that sense. Can you sort of introduce your project to us and our audience a little bit? Tell us about what you've been working on. Yeah, so um, I'm primarily an historian uh, of uh, China. My project is about the 19th century. It's um, looking at Chinese migration. Particularly, I'm interested in um, exploring the sort of encounter between the uh, Chinese Empire at the time, which is called the Qing Empire, and the British Empire in the 19th century, their encounter through Chinese migrations and ways in which sort of the two powers became uh, entangled, as I like to call them, through migration, contests over migration issues uh, in the period. You are working in the 19th century, and Anna is, of course, a sinologist as well, working mm-hmm. at the start of the 20th century. Is that how... Uh, you guys came to know each other? Yeah, well, uh, one of my strategies for weaseling my way into uh, academia here has been hanging around at the uh, Manchester China Institute, which is a research institute established at Manchester. Great 
speakers uh, come in regularly. I even got to come in myself once, which was much appreciated. And uh, so I met Anna at a couple of the events there, and as a very regular attendee. It's also, yeah, it's given me a platform to meet her and other people working in and around Manchester uh, in Chinese studies. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful platform for sort of people to meet and talk about their research, which is which I found quite useful in terms of getting to know people. It's a wonderful institution. And they keep doing regular seminars throughout the pandemic, which is, again, quite useful in terms of keeping in the loop and keep seeing people. Yeah, as with a lot of, uh, I think, universities, research institutes, uh, the pandemic is also, the fact that they've been forced online sort of opens up attendance to people who couldn't otherwise be there uh, through Zoom. So there's, in the sessions I've been to, people have been Zooming in from at least all over the UK, even further afield. Yeah, there has been a certain sort of uh, democratizing mm-hmm. of uh, of events like that. Uh, I just went to a talk of Anna's yesterday night. Oh, uh, via, via Zoom, it's very good, um, and it was it did make me think about how easy it can be now to attend a talk that is of interest to you. You don't have to think like, oh, I'd love to go to that, but it's in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. So I hope that's a bit of a change that sticks around. Although I would love to be back at in-person talks, maybe they could sort of uh, go hybrid, do both. Yeah, I definitely, uh, I definitely miss uh, that aspect of being in person. So I, I just immediately before the pandemic started, uh, had managed to sort of get myself affiliated with this China Institute in the hopes of having a, a place to work and colleagues to see regularly um, outside of my own home. But uh, literally the Friday. Uh, I picked up the keys on the Friday, and then that Monday, the basically national lockdown began. Missed that opportunity, unfortunately. So, how has been continuing research from home? It's uh, it's been okay for the most part. I'm you know in a, a somewhat advantageous position in that most of the archival research that required me to go anywhere physically, I had already taken care of. Um, I'm pretty far along in the program. I should be finishing very soon, although I've been saying that for a while. So at this stage, I'm working through results that I've collected. There are some things I had to uh, get my hands on since lockdown, but um, fortunately, I've been able to get everything I need uh, online. But for the most part, I already had the resources I needed. So it's just been really trying to focus on writing and not going insane. That's a very good focus to have. How did you come to be interested in your topic? How did you come to research it? So I... uh, as you can tell by my accent, I'm not from the UK. I am Canadian. I'm from a um, Atlantic province uh, called Newfoundland. So it's uh, basically if you cross the ocean directly west from uh, from Ireland and a little bit south, you'll end up uh, where I'm from. So historically, that Newfoundland has been pretty Atlantic oriented for obvious reasons. Um, but uh, when I did my undergraduate degree there, I um, had the opportunity to take a language, and I chose Chinese. I was kind of tired of the... I'd done French all throughout school, uh, as some Canadian kids do. And I really liked the Chinese class a lot. It sort of got me interested in uh, culture more broadly. And when I became a history major uh, in my second year, uh, I looked for ways that I could sort of do that, uh, bring those two interests together. Offerings sort of in Chinese studies at that university extremely limited. So I kind of went at it through the British Empire, which is we had some more expertise in. And when I finally did my uh, honors project at the end of that degree, I did it about the uh, opium wars, which is 
uh, for anyone familiar, a very uh, important moment in the history of Chinese Empire and British Empire meeting. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed the work I did on that so much. I looked for history graduate programs where I could really focus on China, and that's how I ended up uh, in Toronto. I did a master's there and then took some years off and came back and uh, did a PhD there, which hopefully we'll finish soon. You said that you met your partner while you were uh, both doing PhDs, yeah. which I think is it's not a completely uncommon mm. experience, but I don't think it's something that we've had a guest talk about before. Oh, really? So I don't know. I've been with my partner for a very long time. Mm. Um, what is it like, both of you doing a PhD at the same time? Mm. Is it? It seems like it would be incredibly stressful. Uh, yeah, in some ways, you know, it was. So we're about the same age, but I took some time off between all my degrees, and she went straight through. So by the time we met, she was close to finishing, and I was just starting. And having it kind of staggered in that way is helpful, not in the least because. Once she'd finished, she could start earning some money while I'm still earning virtually nothing being a PhD student. But also it meant that, you know, the kind of stresses that you go through um, doing a PhD are a bit staggered. So, you know, I was sort of most stressed out at certain points in my degree, particularly sort of, uh, we have this process called comp, doing comprehensive exams in uh, Canada and the States, um, which for me was super stressful. And, uh, you know, so when I was going through that, she was sort of in a more relaxed uh, research and writing period. And then when she was uh, doing her uh, own sort of final write-ups and defense, which was obviously very stressful, I was at a stage where I had a bit more uh, flexibility so I could be there and support her. So, in, you know, it certainly uh, can be challenging, but I think uh, it's helpful to have somebody who sort of understands all the weirdness about academia and about doing a PhD. Mm, someone who's who's been there before and yeah. who can maybe because this is something i think even just within the sort of the the community and the friendship relationships is just knowing someone who's a year ahead of you or two years ahead mm -hmm. of you so that when you're losing your mind over your first submission to your supervisors they can just say you know that you don't have to worry about this yeah. like it's this feels like the end of the world right now but in a year you'll look back and just think why was i so worried i think it helps put things in perspective, uh, but also sort of like in the long term of things, you know, there's lots of totally baffling things about uh, academia that can be hard to, it, it can be hard to explain to somebody who's not sort of in the cult why things are done the way they are, why we get so stressed out about these things. Um, so it, it's always helpful that people understand that, uh, whether friends or partners. That's why I think having a PhD community has been so helpful. Because yeah, because having people that that kind of understand and not having to explain the peculiarities of the process yeah. all the time. Yeah, and as I said, that's one of the things I, I have definitely missed about um, not being uh, in the place where I'm doing my degree. Yeah, I think I mean even for us, where we're at least in the city where we're studying, it has been we were part of a, a very active and sociable community that's basically had to move completely online which has been like a, a challenge i think we've had some good results from it the online social events are as good as you can hope for those to be i guess we've got you know group chats and places where people can ask questions of you know people who are a year or two ahead which i certainly wish we'd had in first year i think when i first started 
while I sort of knew by sight some of the second and third years, I wouldn't necessarily have felt like I could approach them and ask them uh, what I should be worried about or how long a literature review should be or uh, what a literature review was. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, so I think that when we sort of started as second years ourselves, we were quite keen to uh, extend to the incoming students uh, the help that it would have been good to have ourselves. I think that's great, yeah, and it um, makes such a difference to the new students. One thing, uh, we have quite a large graduate uh, program in my department back in Canada with a pretty active, uh, like the, the community, it, it has a formal structure called the Graduate History Society. Uh, one thing we tried to do, I was not the, uh, I did not spearhead this by uh, any stretch, but uh, I was able to help a little bit, but trying to put together uh, uh, sort of a manual, an introductory uh, manual for students of sort of combined wisdom. The problem is with these programs that even if you have people um, in some uh, cohorts that are extremely helpful and knowledgeable and love passing on that information, sooner or later eventually they're going to graduate or uh, leave. And uh, it's helpful to have sort of a repository of that for uh, new students. Well, that's one of the purposes of this pro podcast. That's a good idea. Yeah, this came out of uh, very early conversations that Anna and I had about when you start, everyone telling you that doing your PhD is going to be miserable and lonely <laughs> and isolating. Uh, and, you know, I think people are trying to prepare you and, like, set your expectations in such a way that it won't come as a surprise when you have those inevitable difficult points in your PhD. But when you hit, in your sort of induction week, you hear it about, 15 times mm. from 15 different people uh we wanted something that was a little bit of an antidote yeah that, that. that could be pretty daunting pretty discouraging uh which is why uh when we invite a guest onto the show we ask them if they can share something funny from either from their research from the archive or something funny that's happened to them as a researcher uh i mean I, you know my research has has tended to be it, 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 it's a little bit serious in some ways that I have I, some of the topics I focus on uh, are a bit less than comedic, shall we say. It is a pretty heavy topic. It can be, you know, at least in the way I, I approach it in some cases. Uh, one of the chapters I wrote, um, so one of the um, subjects of my research uh, ended up being this guy named uh, Robert Hart, who uh, he's from Belfast, but uh, he worked in China for most of his life. Uh, for the Chinese government in the 19th century. Uh, and he was involved behind the scenes in a bunch of migration issues, which is uh, how he came into my project. Uh, and I, I read his uh, private diaries, his personal diaries, which are, or some of them, um, which are located uh, at Queen University, Belfast. Uh, and I found lots of interesting stuff in there, but uh, I, somehow I couldn't help myself from um, recording the parts of the diary the really personal things where he gets into his extreme sexual hang-ups. Um, he came to China as a young man um, and had a Chinese partner there and kids whom he sort of uh, left and someone disowned, or he, sent, he shipped them off to the England, actually. And uh, later on, had some other uh, affairs in China. He was also a devoutly religious guy, so he um, had a tremendous amount of guilt about his uh, past and his kind of 
continuing lust for people. So he, uh, he would frequently uh, record these passages about his uh, incredible sexual hangups, which uh, I just couldn't resist but uh, recording when I saw them. I mean, what kind of stuff are we, are we talking about here? Like, Well, for, you know, he was religious enough that he, um, he held back, but he, uh, he had tremendous guilt about, about the very fact that he had sexual desire in this kind of uh, tremendously Victorian way. He would go on for pages about it at a time. It's very, it's very interesting because a lot of stuff like that gets edited out um, because I think China Inland Mission Archive, uh, had to, uh, China Inland Mission was the biggest mission in China and it was led by a guy called Hudson Taylor. And later on, his archive was edited, I think, by his daughter. And she edits out like things in letters to his wife Um you know, even even words like bosom get like covered with with a strip of paper because oh, wow. a missionary, a devout man, shouldn't say those words, and that's quite interesting. interesting. I think there is an article on sexuality in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, actually, the earlier, similarly, the earlier um, diaries of his when he was a younger man, uh, when he was with his first Chinese partner that he had kids with. Um, were later destroyed by family members. As, as far as we know, they don't exist anymore. But uh, his hang-ups remain. That's really interesting. When you do find those sort of very uh, personal stories within the sort of the bigger story that you're trying to pursue, it definitely sort of sticks with you, I suppose, because it can make it very uh, more real-seeming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, sort of brings you away from the abstract and back into the sort of... Uh, the concrete and the personal uh, in historical research. It's particularly, uh, a lot of the other sources I used were sort of more government sources, so it rarely contained personal reflections. Um, but um, yeah, there's something very endearing about working with uh, personal diaries for that reason, is that it really, you really do feel connected to the whatever the subject you are, uh, historical subject that you're looking into as a result, seeing them as a whole person. That's definitely something that I've experienced in uh, my research is uh, that even people, like the the people that I'm researching, even when they're someone that I know I wouldn't like in real life, if I really met her, I know I wouldn't like her, there's something about spending such a long time in contact with someone's personal correspondence or their diary or, you know, other types of life writing that you can't help but sort of love them and see them in a a different light. Again, I suppose because it makes them into a whole person instead of just uh, a sort of collection of political beliefs that you agree with or disagree with. And instead you see them as someone who loved people and would, you know, go to bat to help out a friend, even if they also thought things that you would find pretty abhorrent Mm. about other people. Yeah, it can help to keep a historical figure in proportion and stop you from caricaturing them, mm-hmm. I think, when you deal with their personal material. Yeah, it's something in the, in the chapter I based off uh, partially on those materials I tried to sort of capture in the writing um, without, uh, without necessarily obscuring those political opinions that uh, might make us very uncomfortable or whatever opinions, still trying to capture some of the humanity that is very hard to get without using something like private diaries or private records in the sort of uh, 
personal reflections and human interactions between people. But at the same time, as I said, not losing sight of the, that these people are kind of participating in, in this, in my case, you know, imperial systems that have real consequences for people. Well, it's also quite interesting finding out what is sort of behind those decisions. Um, because I think, I think what is really exciting about your research when kind of I heard your presentation in Manchester China Institute was the fact that accounts of it tend to be either quite celebratory or quite anti-imperialist. And it's quite difficult to strike this, I don't like the word balance, but, you know, kind mm. of maintaining understanding of where something comes from while also disagreeing with it. One of the things I've tried to do with this project, uh, particularly with respect to looking at the British Empire and British imperialism, um, has been really inspired by um, the work of this woman, Lisa Lowe. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Um, her. Her most recent book is The Intimacies of Four Continents, which I highly, highly recommend. It's a way, you know, it's trying to be critical of uh, liberalism and liberal powers historically, like uh, Britain, for example, not, you know, understanding that part of their objective was to create in some ways freedom uh, or freedoms. What she does, uh, she calls the unsettling genealogy of modern liberalism, which is looking at the ways in which freedoms for some people, particularly white liberal subjects, uh, were created by um, subordinating or denying freedoms to particularly people of color um, through empire and through other means. And uh, I've tried to, in all the parts of the dissertation where I look at the British Empire, try to understand their actions really did in some cases involve the production of freedoms for both British people and others, but um, in many cases those often were built upon subordinating the freedoms of others. British Empire is such a complicated subject exactly because it kind of, I'm always quite excited to read about communication of cultures or you know, spread of ideas, and it does diversify the field, but it was also an imperialist project that existed for a very particular complex set of purposes it, and, and benefited a very particular group of individuals. Yeah, one thing, you know, I've tried to do and I'm trying to do in my work is, uh, in some ways, it's easier for scholars who are looking purely at the British Empire to kind of make those critiques and have really focused critiques of the British Empire. What I'm trying to do involves uh, looking at a lot of Chinese materials in the Chinese Empire itself. There's a lot of scholarship now that uh, there's a whole movement in, in history writing called New Qing History, which is looking at this last imperial dynasty of China um, and trying to understand it as a, an, imp an imperial power in its own right that expanded and subordinated other peoples, many people who are somewhat controversial citizen subjects of the uh, PRC today. So in the far west in Xinjiang, Uyghur people, as well as Tibetans and others, uh, were all incorporated into the empire at this time. Trying to remain critical of the Qing empire while simultaneously being critical of imperialism, uh, of British imperialism performed there is, is kind of a difficult feat in some ways, but uh, this is something I'm really trying to get at with my research. Should we turn to something lighter? When you work on history, trying to talk about something light quite quickly leads to uh, to something heavy. I, I, unfortunately, I, I, my brain tends to uh, go that way when I'm you know trying to think academically. As a in my regular life, I uh, 
much less serious person, I assure you. In that case, I think all that's left to say is, Nick, thank you so much for being our guest today. It's been absolutely fascinating to learn more about you and about your research. Uh, we wish you lots of luck in the coming months as you prepare to uh, to finish up. Uh, and yeah, we is there anything that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Any uh, upcoming talks or anything? Mm. Oh yeah, I, well I don't have uh, anything scheduled. I, if anyone is planning on attending the um, uh, the AAS, the uh, Association for Asian Studies, which is the big uh, Asian Studies conference um, based in the U.S., I'm going to be on a panel there. And since it's going to be happening virtually this year because of COVID, uh, anybody in the world can join. But uh, you will have to pay, I think, the registration fee for the conference. So uh, no pressure on anybody to do that. <laughs> If um, you're interested in my work, you can check out my uh, my very first article, which is in the uh, Journal of World History. It's called uh, Putting Words in the Emperor's Mouth. It uh, looks at uh, the history of this um, uh, really infamous thing that uh, one of the emperors of China supposedly said about uh, diaspora. And by going back through the history, I sort of trace the ways that uh, I argue that this is a totally manufactured thing that he never said, that it was actually... Uh, a British invention. I traced the way that it was used by uh, British imperialists in the uh, 18th century and then uh, looked to the 20th century when it was sort of translated into Chinese and became um, used by uh, Chinese intellectuals of that time uh, to try and think about ways that uh, Chinese diaspora has been understood uh, as having what I call colonial potential in uh, the uh, historical period. That's very exciting. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks everyone for listening. Georgia, thank you for co-hosting. My pleasure as always. And don't tell your supervisor what you heard here. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast, or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.